I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The first guest of the evening is truly a poet. He's an artist. He is a friend and an inspiration to anyone who I think has ever played the guitar or tried to write poetry. Would you please welcome Gordon Lightfoot. Through the woodland, through the valley, comes a horseman, wild and free, tilting at the windmill's passing. Who can the brave young horseman be? He is wild, but he is mellow. He is strong, but he is weak. He is cruel, but he is gentle. He is wise, but he is meek. This is Carefree Highway Revisited, the show that celebrates the work of Gordon Lightfoot song by song. I'm your host, Mike Messner, and along with me today is a fellow Lightfoot fan and renderer of his music, Ron Skelton. Ron, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Mike. I've really enjoyed the podcast uh, over the last couple of few months, and I thank you for doing this because it's very informative, and I learned so much that I didn't know. Well, that's why we're here, and thank you for taking the time to join us. Probably a good place to start is how you first got into Lightfoot's music. We'll talk about your own covers of his songs and your own musical exploits a little bit later on today. But how did you first get into Lightfoot's music? Well, you know, I had, I had a girlfriend in high school, and after we graduated, we used to get together and sing, and she kept telling me, I want to learn you to learn the Wishing Well song. And I had no idea what the Wishing Well song was until... Maybe about a year and a half later, when someone, uh, another friend gave me a Gordon Lightfoot tape of Sit Down, Young Stranger. And it was there that I heard, if you could read my mind in the reference to the wishing well. And I thought, oh, that's what she meant by the wishing well song. Mm -hmm. And of course, I was in totally enamored with Gordon's voice. Yeah. And with another cut on the, uh, the that album, which was Minstrel of the Dawn. I was the kid that when everybody else was really getting into the Beatles, I was still listening to the Kingston Trio. <laughs> yeah, I've been there. I know the kind of experience that is where you're listening to the pure folk music when everybody else is listening to top 40s rock and roll. Oh, I was actually angry at the Beatles because I just steamrolled over my beloved Kingston Trio, you know, oh. and wiped them off the face of the earth. Yeah, they really did. And speaking as one who knew and was friends with John Stewart years after, he had some stories about that. So I know exactly what you're talking about. Now, what's your experience been seeing Lightfoot in concert? Uh, I first saw Gordon in, uh, I think, 1975 or 76 in Dallas, Texas. I was back when back in the Pee Wee Charles day. And he, you know, he hadn't moved to synthesizer and, and all that. And I think maybe the, right after the Cold on the Shoulder album came out, he it was the first time I've, I've seen... I've seen Gordon at least six times in, in three different states. I, I saw him in uh, Texas at both Fort Worth and Dallas. I saw him in Arizona at uh, Phoenix and also Prescott, where I currently live. And I saw him in San Diego. I actually went backstage and got to meet him in Tarrant County 
convention center in Fort Worth. He seemed a little bit miffed that the guard had let us back in, but he was cordial enough. He's was and is, you know, a personality and he doesn't get a whole lot of privacy anyway. So may have been a miscommunication, but I'm really glad you got a chance to meet him. That's great. So Don Quixote and I, Ron, I was really happy when you chose this because it is absolutely my favorite of all the songs that Lightfoot has ever done. And I wanted to get your reactions to why you like it so much. For me, it's jaunty. In other words, it's not overly contemplative, moves along at a nice pace. Uh, it's got a delicious guitar part played by Red Shea, which we'll talk more about later. And there's a string part to it that is just enough to make the song cinematic without fighting with the rest of the arrangement. So it doesn't come across uh, like a Hollywood soundtrack, right. although, of course, it was written for a movie. But it doesn't come across as being overly orchestrated. It still sounds like a folk song. So those are the reasons why I enjoy it. What about you? Well, starting just like you said, starting with the tempo and the meter of the song, to me, it sounds like a horse galloping. And then, you know, to take a line from Mentral to Dawn, listen to the pictures flow across the room and to your mind they go. Yeah. I don't think there's another Lightfoot song that can create visual image in your head more than Don Quixote. No, I think you're probably right. And We'll talk more about the the musicianship, you know, and all of the people that were involved with the song, because you mentioned this idea that it's like a horse going. So there is a sort of a Western feel to it, just a little bitty bit. What to you is the best setting to listen to this song in? Is it day, night, moving, standing still, around a campfire, what? I think it's during the day. We have pine trees and mountains close to, to where I live and driving the winding roads through the pines and stuff like that with it on your car stereo at three quarters volume. And, it, you know, and you just feel like you're 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 going through the woodlands in the valley. It, you know, it's exactly the same for me. I mean, the very first time I heard this song, I was three years old. And my dad had bought Gord's Gold and was listening to it. It was during the summer. And. I remember going to some field trip with some pre-kindergarten classes or some preschool class. We were going to some area that had redwoods in it, you know, fairly close to where mm -hmm. I live in the Bay Area. And the song was going through my head and I was humming it to myself and I didn't know what the words were, but I just remember, you know, singing that to myself. And so whenever I listen to this song, that comes back to me. And I think driving through the Redwoods up to Northern California, which is where my in-laws live, is one of my favorite places or settings to kind of listen to it. Let's talk about the genesis of the song. It's clearly inspired by the Cervantes book, Don Quixote de la Mancha, and it's rooted in that, but it's also got some elements that are more modern to it. And I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of people find it so intriguing. So let's get this out on the table. Have you read Don Quixote either in the, the original Spanish or in English? I have not. I've just kind of heard this premise of the story and kind of seen, you know, clips and things like that of it. Uh, of course, in the late 60s, uh, Man of La Mancha was the big play on Broadway. And, yeah. and uh, To Dream the Impossible Dream was the big song and everybody was recording it. And of course, I think in 72, Peter O'Toole reprised that role in a movie that they finally made. 
Man of La Mancha. Yeah, and I've been wanting to see that movie because I think it would be just absolutely amazing because it's such a sweeping book. I've never finished the book. And if I had been a Spanish major in college, they probably would have made me read it in the original Spanish. But Wikipedia described the song, and I'm quoting here, as a lyrical take on Cervantes's man, a paean to the half-mad hero who still stirs us with a zeal almost gone. The melody is as strong as the ancient theme and the powerful words. Well, that's strong language. And then Lightfoot himself said, it was written for Michael Douglas's first movie, Hail Hero. I wrote the title song for the movie, but it was no good, even though he used it. He didn't use Don Quixote, even though it was a better song. It wasn't a very good demo. I was at the premiere of the movie in Boston, and the producers took us all out to the horse track there. It was the only time I ever went to the races in my life. The movie went down in flames, but the song survived, and it seems that Mr. Douglas has thrived also. Well, that brings up another question. Have you seen the movie that Gordon was talking about, and do you see any connection between the story and the song and the film? Yeah, I have, and just recently, I think I was one, and it made me wonder if Gordon was giving a, a script or knew what was going to be in the movie because there was the, uh, the line of the, about the rusty sword. There's the scene where Michael Douglas grabs him, the rusty sword from his family's Civil War collection and he's fighting the wildcat. And, and I just wondered if, if he was putting elements from the movie into the song so that the movie reflected that. Yeah, it could be. I haven't seen the movie. And quite frankly, I hadn't heard of the movie until I started doing my research for this show. So it maybe it's something that I need to look into because I know it was originally written for that movie. Well, it, it, it opens, of course, with, with Michael Douglas walking down a dirt road and a, a truckload of immigrant farm workers come up behind him and he whips his coat off like a matador and has the truck charge him like a bull. And it's very chaotic, you know, uh, the whole movie is premised about him trying to talk to people and then them, no one will hear, you know? Yeah, it sounds like a very kind of 60s movie. You know, again, I'll have to look at it or, you know, listen to a podcast about that movie. Let's start talking about the lyrics a little bit. Now, I opened with reciting the first chunk of the song and we'll re-examine that at the very end because, of course, the song starts and finishes the same way. So, reaching for his saddlebag, he takes a battered book into his hand. Now, is the book supposed to be the Bible or is it supposed to be a book of heroic stories that this character has been reading? Because that's the whole premise of Don Quixote is this guy who's just gone crazy and he's read too many of these heroic uh, right. fictional tales. So what do you think? What's the book supposed to be? I think the book is supposed to be the Bible because he, he later says being like a prophet. Well, of course, you know, prophets were not necessarily in books of, of mythical heroes, but prophets were in the Bible. And so, you know, to me, that ties it, you know, it's, it's the Bible. Yeah. And that is the very next line. In fact, standing like a prophet bold, he shouts across the ocean to the shore till he can shout no more. And he is playing a prophet and he's going to play two other roles, you know, before this thing is over with. And the thing that struck me about this before I even started doing my research is that if you shout across the ocean to the shore, no one will hear you because it's thousands of miles. There's no possible way you could be heard. And even if you were heard, it's not going to change anything. So there's a right. certain futility to it. 
and it's something that the the song does kind of come back to the the futility of it or the pointlessness of what is going on and it probably has a lot to do with the character in the movie but it also ties back to Quixote doing all these things that come out of insanity they aren't coming out of any real chivalry or any real attempt to change the world and not a serious attempt anyway I kind of thought that maybe he was shouting across the ocean to the other shore because, as he later says, in my current situation, no one will hear. Well, I might as well shout across the ocean. Maybe somebody over there will hear, you know? Yeah, although the end result of it is that nobody's going to hear him no matter where he goes. And we'll talk more about that later, too. We'll be right back to our conversation with Ron Skelton about Don Quixote. But first, a word from one of our podcast partners. Hey, do you like classic albums? Technically, like, the, you know, the 20th century albums, um, such as, like, Beatles, Led Zeppelin, <laughs> Rolling Stones. I've only had Beatles episodes so far, however, we'll be doing more. But welcome to my show, or rather, hey, welcome to check out my show. <laughs> um, all those years ago, a classic album podcast with the dipping sauce, um, as you can see, the George Harrison reference. Um, I review classic albums, um, not of those the likes of Beethoven, the likes of the Beatles and Rolling Stones, and like I mentioned earlier, uh, or what have you. <laughs> um, so yeah, check it out. It's every Monday. Um, I do albums, conspiracies, songs, all that jazz. So just check it out. All those years ago, a classic album podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> I have come o'er moor and mountain like the hawk upon the wing. I was once a shining knight who was the guardian of a king. Well, this is Quixote speaking, and it's beautiful couplet, but we know from the book that he wasn't any of those things. He right. has not come over moor and mountain. He's not very far from his home. He was never a shining knight, okay? He never worked for the king of Spain or Castile or any place else. He's a crazy man who has read too many of these stories. And I think, not having finished the book, I think the whole point that Cervantes was making was that he was trying to do a send-up or a parody of chivalry or nobility. That was the whole point of the book. I have searched the whole world over looking for a place to sleep. I have seen the strong survive and I have seen the lean grow weak. Well, again, we know from the book he had a place to sleep. He did have a home. He hasn't been over the whole world. We don't know if he even got out of the region of La Mancha, you know, which is this area of Spain that Don Quixote is supposed to come from. Now, the strong do indeed survive, and the ones who can't support themselves or provide for themselves do indeed perish. I mean, there's some real Darwinism there. This is long before Darwin. So there's a truism there. But right now, I just see that he's still setting the scene about who Don Quixote is supposed to be. Your thoughts? I I agree with you there. And I think he's starting to set the table of, let's look at the comparisons between the strong and and the wealthy class and the weak who, you know, are on the other side of the, almost like a class warfare kind of a situation. Yeah. And I think we can probably see that in some of the portions of the song as they come up. And we're going to get into that right now. 
See the children of the earth who wake to find the table bare. See the gentry in the country riding off to take the air. So you have the weak who are headed for doom, and then you have the rich kind of carefree existence. The children of the earth, when I think of them, okay, they're the children of the earth because they can't be the children of anybody else. The parents are not on the scene. Maybe they're orphans. Maybe they've been abandoned. They have no food. And you contrast that immediately afterwards with the gentry who are one step below the nobility in a social hierarchy, at least in most places in Europe. And they're saying, well, I'm going to go take the air, meaning I'm just going to go outside. I'm riding off maybe in a coach, maybe on horses themselves, but I'm just going to go outside and get a breath of fresh air. Whereas the children of the earth, probably that's all they're doing is being out in the elements, breathing the air because they have no place to go. They can't go inside because there is no inside for them to go into. Or perhaps working in the mines like the children and things like that did back in those times where there wasn't any fresh air. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that because he didn't really allude to the idea that they're working in the mines. You know, I mean, we'll probably at some point I'll do an episode on Boss Man, uh, which is, you know, a song about miners. But I do see the contrast that you were talking about a minute ago, you know, between those two. Now getting back to the second chorus, reaching for his saddlebag, he takes a rusty sword into his hand. Now you mentioned the Civil War sword from the movie. The sword is rusty, meaning that it hasn't been used in a fight recently, if it's been used at all. It probably wouldn't help in defending its owner because it's rusty. And if it got a good blow from another broadsword, it would probably just collapse or dissolve. We're back to the madman in the Cervantes book. Right. Striking up a knightly pose. Now he's playing a knight. He's not playing a prophet anymore. This is another fantasy that he's having. Okay, I am now Sir Don Quixote. And he's playing that role for an audience of one because there's nobody else around. Or if there is, we don't see them. And he's back to shouting across the ocean to the shore where nobody's going to hear him. Right. Then we get back into the contrasts or the little thumbnail sketches that Gordon is doing. See the jailer with his key who locks away all trace of sin. See the judge upon the bench who tries the case as best he can. That's probably just as true in Cervantes's time as it is in 1968, 1969, when Gordon is writing this song. When did he write this song? Are you familiar? Was it 68, 69, 70? I know it came out in 72. You know, I I don't know. We'd probably have to find out when the film people wanted him to to write it for their movie. It's probably when he did it. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have no idea exactly when he put the pen to the paper on that. See the wise and wicked ones who feed upon life's sacred fire. Ron, what do you think this means? This is a very broad portrait, and it's it's very poetic. But who do you think Lightfoot's talking about in that particular stanza? To me, because of the next line, it's the... Maybe you'd say the corporations, the the, the the wealth of the world that sends soldiers to battle to fight for their interests, and they feed upon life itself and those people and send them to their desk to protect their own interests. That's an interesting analysis to it. I think I didn't look at it on a corporate level, although it's certainly true that corporations do 
precipitate wars or are involved in precipitating wars for their own economic interests. There's no doubt about that. We've seen that through history. I thought about life's sacred fire. I thought of that being the sun, that without the sun, we could not survive as a species and it shines on both the wise and the wicked. This is a statement about humanity more than anything else. But then the fact that he's now referring to a soldier in the very next line, I like the connection that you're making with that. Now, see the soldier with his gun who must be dead to be admired. Whether this was written in 68, 69, 71, 72, Vietnam is still going on. I don't know how much of a role Canada played in that war. It's very much seen as being America's war and a failed war in many ways. But someone has said that this is a line kind of alluding to Vietnam. The idea that the veterans are coming home, they're being spat on, they're being called baby killers, they're being treated really dishonorably. But if they had died over there, they would be lionized. They would be idolized. They would be put on a pedestal, maybe in more ways than one. So. Do you think this is about Vietnam or is this more of a generalized statement about soldiers? Well, I, I think Vietnam surely was an influence, but I think it's true. Of, I mean, we honor our, our soldiers when they're dead. They come back injured and stuff like that. We tend to forget about them because it costs us money. But uh, you asked about Canada. Well, Canada did not support the Vietnam War. In fact, young men that wanted to avoid serving in the draft actually fled to Canada Cross the borders to escape being inducted into the military. So it was it was hard for Gordon to write a anti-war protest song from a, as a Canadian because Canada didn't support the war. Well, and there were a number of young men who did try to escape across the border to Canada, probably knowing that that was it. They could not come back if they did right. that. Now, of course, they were given amnesty by Jimmy Carter years later, but. I think a lot of them realize with some trepidation, okay, if I do this, I'm going to basically be a Canadian for the rest of my life. I won't ever be able to come back to the U.S. But it seems like it's a more generalized statement about soldiers. And Gordon is writing in the only context he has, which is Canada. Right. Because so, he's not you know, an American citizen. I, don't, I still don't think he's an American citizen today. See the man who tips the needle. See the man who buys and sells. Now, some people have said this is about a heroin user or somebody who buys drugs, sells drugs, you know, is just basically right. supporting somebody else's habit or is themselves a uh, addict. To me, that may very well be true, but I prefer to look at it as a time when you weighed things on a scale and the needle swung in a certain way so that it showed you how much it weighed, like an old time bathroom scale. Um, they, they could put their thumb on the scale to make it weigh a little more than what they were charging you for as well. Yeah, okay. And that may be the idea of tipping the needle, you know, tipping it one way or the other, because that sort of scale or measurement was used at the time when Cervantes was writing, which, you know, I guess would be 17th century. You know, we're headed out of the Renaissance and into the Enlightenment period, but it was still a very romantic way of being a peddler. And certainly there are parts of the song that are not very romantic. I prefer to think of it that way. I don't know if Lightfoot has ever gone on record about that particular part of it. See the man who puts the collar on the ones who dare not tell. Now that could be any number of things. So I'm just going to hand that one to you. Ron, what on earth is that? 
I think it's a metaphor. I think it's like telling someone, either threatening them with the, either their job or personal pain or safety to keep your mouth shut and, and don't tell what's going on, because if you do, it'll cost you. Blackmail. Right. I think it probably is somebody who has control over another person, whether it's blackmail or some people have said this is chattel slavery. I don't know if that's necessarily the best one, but certainly the idea, if you tell, if you squeal, if you disclose what you know, something will happen to your family, something will happen to your job, something will happen to your livelihood, but it's wonderfully wide open for that. We'll be right back to our conversation with Ron Skelton about Don Quixote. But first, a word from one of our podcast partners. Hi, this is Audie Martello, the host of the Mostly Folk podcast, a 60-minute foray into the music we all love. You will hear newly released albums, classic folk, country, and bluegrass music, as well as some traditional music, that may or may not be true to the genre. Sometimes irreverent, often opinionated, but always entertaining. You may even hear a radio magic trick every so often, as well as numerous interviews via Zoom and telephone with established as well as indie artists. Mostly Folk is available wherever you listen to podcasts and always at mostlyfolk.org. See the drunkard in the tavern stemming gold to make ends meet. Now, I got to be honest with you. I thought for years that what he was saying was standing goal to make ends meet. You know, that this is all he wanted to do is just to get by so he could take another drink. Stemming gold, I think, means it's like bumming a cigarette. It's begging. Is that your understanding of it? Yeah, in fact, when I performed the song, I, I used a little artistic license and put begging gold to make ends meet, just so the audience knows what I'm talking about. Stemming gold, I mean, it's a little bit more glib, but it's also one of those things where if you haven't read the lyrics, you are going to have a harder time the way that the song comes out on the record. A drunkard in the tavern, you know, this his entire goal is just to get enough money to have another beer. See the youth in ghetto black condemned to life upon the street. Now, this is a really cinematic, but we're going from these sweet pastoral scenes to something that's very perennial, which is alcoholism. And now we're going to this mid 20th century image of kids in what we would now call the inner cities. Okay, right. uh, Ghetto is a term I think that's gone out of fashion in a lot of ways. You talked about having contrasts between the strong survive and the lean growing weak. Why do you think he threw in this reference to youths in ghetto black right at the very end of this verse? Well, I think his whole purpose in this song was to create some social recognition of the problems that society has today. I mean, he first addressed that with, you know, Black Day in July. Yeah. Then Sit Down Young Stranger does have references and, of course, then later Circle of Steel. You know, all these things kind of deal with maybe the inequality in, of life amongst uh, groups of people, some being at the top, some being at the bottom. So I think he, he just wants to make us socially aware, as, as most folk singers, from Woody Guthrie, you know, Pete Seeger, you know, on down. 
he does have a, a few songs, and you mentioned a few of them. There are a few more that are very topical and that deal with the social issues of the day. He's not as skilled at it or has not spent as much of his time on it as other artists. I mean, I think the, the polar opposite would be Phil Oaks, where right. you think that almost everything he wrote was some sort of social commentary until the very end of his life. But this is one of those where he's at least pointing it out. Reaching for his saddlebag, he takes a tarnished cross into his hand. Now he's using religion again. This is the third act in this sort of pantomime that he's doing. But it's a tarnished cross, meaning that it doesn't look very attractive. It's probably not one that you would use at a revival meeting or something like that. Maybe it looks a little hokey. Then standing like a preacher now, he shouts across the ocean to the shore. Once again, he's trying to do something impossible, and he's thinking that the religious aspect of his life is going to help him. And then in a blaze of tangled hooves, he gallops off across the dusty plain. Now, I've never been to Spain, Ron, and I don't know if you have, but there is a region called La Mancha in Spain, which is this dusty arid kind of desert area, which is where the at least some of the Don Quixote book comes from. In vain to search again where no one will hear. So he's going to go on, and this is something else that you mentioned earlier, he's going to go on trying to do the impossible, and we as observers know it's futile. He's going to search again in vain where no one will hear. If you're wondering what's going to happen to him after the song is over, he's just going to be repeating this over and over again. Did you feel sad when you thought about that, the song in that particular context? Yeah, and uh, the Tarnished Cross to me kind of maybe is a metaphor for maybe that modern Christianity has somewhat failed with the uh, televangelist preachers that are driving Maseratis and living in mansions. And, and they're just as much a part of this upper-class gentry, wealthy, that is not taking care of the poor. To me, that would tarnish the cross that's supposed to represent them. We didn't see that so much in the late 60s and 70s. That became a big thing in the 80s. But right. I think the thing that for me, if there was a tarnished cross, it would be this idea that Christianity... At that particular time, this is before moral majority and those kinds of things, people thought of fundamentalism. And fundamentalism was not attractive. It did not have a whole lot of charisma to it. It was literally what's in the Bible is literally the way it happened. It was, seemed very legalistic. It was not very attractive. And by virtue of the fact that it wasn't attractive, it became tarnished. I no, I like, I like your synopsis there. So whereas when you get into the 70s, without getting into agreement or disagreement with the theology, yeah. it became somewhat more attractive to be a Christian because that's where you get more modern evangelism. Okay, you have Billy Graham who's speaking for a new generation of believers. You have the Jesus right. people down in Southern California. You have the Vineyard and Calvary Chapel, and then later that's going to morph into the Moral Majority and Jerry Falwell, which may or may not be the same kind of attractiveness. But this is a bit of a rut for Christians in the, the late 60s and the early 70s. And then we come to the beginning of the song again, 
through the woodland, through the valley, comes a horseman wild and free. We know this is supposed to be Quixote. We don't see Sancho Panza with him at this point, so he's all by himself. Tilting at the windmills passing. Well, we know what tilting at windmills means. He believes the windmill is an enemy that is attacking him. So he's either trying to attack it back or he's trying to get away from it. But the blade of the windmill actually hits him in the back of the head and knocks him off his horse, which is kind of a funny you know, image if you think about it. He is wild, but he is mellow. He is strong, but he is weak. He is cruel, but he is gentle. He is wise, but he is meek. Great set of adjectives there. Why do you think Lightfoot put all those together in that series? I think just to show the, the opposite poles of everything. And like you said earlier, as he repeats this first verse again, it's like you said, Quixote is going to go ahead and continue doing the same thing over and over and over again until someday he just dies and it stops. And again, I haven't read the book, so I don't know how the book ends. Maybe I need to just see the movie because I don't know if I want to read the original Spanish because yeah. my Spanish is pretty rusty. He has the capacity to be all of these things. And at times he's trying to act on the positive qualities. But as we do see in the book, he ends up hurting other people on accident. So now let's get back to the, some of the practicalities of this. The song was on the album of the same name, Don Quixote. The album got to number one in Canada and then number 42 in the United States and number 44 in the UK. The song was never released as a single. And I'm not completely sure why they chose not to do that. I mean, there were other songs on Don Quixote that were released as singles that were fairly successful. Why do you think Lightfoot and his company decided not to use this as a single? They didn't realize what they had because uh, to me, it's in my top three favorite Gordon Lightfoot songs. And that album is probably my favorite album of all the albums that Gordon Lightfoot ever released. There's not a bad song on that album. Yeah. And it's kind of surprising to me it didn't do better in the States, although obviously did very well in Canada. What is your favorite musical aspect of the song? To me, it was like I said earlier, I think it's uh, the meter of the song and uh, the lead guitar parts. And um, especially where Rick Haynes' bass, Rick Haynes does not bring the bass in until the start of the second verse. That's right. And it comes in very dramatically right there. And I just love that part of it. It is very cinematic how it comes in. Yeah. It's not outlandish, but it does come out very assertively. Now, before we get into the people who did this, you said there's a meter to it. I can't tell if there's any percussion in this song or not. There's not a drummer or a percussionist mentioned in the liner notes, but it seems like there's some sort of rhythm instrument that's keeping the time on this. So I'm wondering, can you hear that? Do you know what it is? Do you know who it is? Any thoughts on that? To me, it's almost like a pick sound of the, of the pick doing a little percussion on the strings. It could be, I mean, although this is being finger-picked, so yeah. not strummed. So it would be hard for me, and also there would have to be some sort of tone to it. There's no right. real tone to this. But it sounds a little bit like the reins of a horse. It's one of those things I'm sure we'll never know. But it seems to me there's somebody keeping some sort of time in this. And if, yeah. if anybody's listening to this episode and they know, you know, please write to me and you know, let me know what, what happened here. 
Gordon played six string. I don't think he was playing a 12 string on this. On the album, Red played high string guitar, classical guitar, and dobro. I think there were probably steel strings on this. I don't hear nylon strings. Terry Clements played lead acoustic guitar, but I don't know if he actually played on this track. Rick, as you said, Rick Haynes played bass. Ry Cooter played mandolin, but I don't hear any mandolin on this. And then Nick DeCaro did a beautiful job on the string arrangements. Absolutely beautiful and understated. We'll be right back to our conversation with Ron Skelton about Don Quixote. But first, a word from one of our podcast partners. Are you a fan of true crime, cults, conspiracies, and all things sinister? Then tune in with me, your host, Steph, every week for a new episode of the Sinister Story Hour. You can find the Sinister Story Hour on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You know, that could have been mandolin with deadened the strings with just giving that muted percussion sound. Yeah, it could have been. It's not something that I can really discern what it is, although it sounds a little bit like a piece of leather hitting wood, but what yeah. do I know? Ron, how many times, and don't cheat on this because we both know the answer, but how many times has Gordon Lightfoot played this song in concert according to setlist.fm? Well, you know, I knew you were going to ask this ask this question, and <laughs> I had already come up with the figure in my mind before I saw the answer, and I was guessing 750 because I think it's one of Gordon's favorite songs. It is, and I was kind of surprised that he had played it that much because it's hard for me to think of that song being played without the string part, quite honestly. But, you know, you were very close, 687 times, according to setlist.fm, and I do think he plays it quite a bit in concert. The first time he played it was December 1st, 1973. So a year and change after the Don Quixote album came out. And then the last time he played it was uh, July of 2021 at the Surf Ballroom in Clear Lake, Iowa. That was before he went and had surgery and before the current tour. I don't know if he's playing it now. So this is very much part of his concert repertoire. There have been five covers of the song as of right now. I'm not familiar with any of these acts. The Country Gentleman, Internet Tribute 2, Lullaby Players, The Other Company, and Jack Semple. Have you heard of or heard any of those covers? No, not at all. It, it doesn't interest me in particular to, to hear them because he does it, Lightfoot does it so perfectly. And I really do mean perfectly. I don't know that there's anybody living or dead that could really do justice to the song. I was thinking perhaps maybe Johnny Cash could have done it. He had the the voice for it. I think that's true. I don't know how characteristic it would have been for his music, but I think it almost would have been too dark you know, for him to do that. Now, as we're starting to wind down here, Ron, you had mentioned the play Man of La Mancha, and I've heard The Impossible Dream, of course, and I think Robert Goulet may have sung it at some point, but the question comes up, that was very popular in the late 60s, early 70s. Do you think that Lightfoot was trying to capitalize on that, saying, hey, Ed, well, there's a play about Don Quixote, so I'll write a song about Don Quixote, or do you think that it was just coincidence? 
I think it's coincidence, but I also think that maybe the uh, producers of the film Hail Hero, which looks to me like it's almost kind of a Don Quixote type movie, wanted him to have a song that was kind of like that. So they were influenced by the man of La Mancha. And then in turn said, Gordon, we want you to write a song about a young man that's very Quixote-like. And so there you have it. I think the the word that's now used in our vocabulary is quixotic. I don't know if I said that right. Yeah. Okay. Now, now, Ron, you have made kind of a a career out of playing Lightfoot songs on the concert stage. Can you tell us a little bit about that and why his songs in particular spoke to you? Well, I've had... Two other tribute bands, the Kingston Trio, one and the Peter Paul and Mary one. And then I finally, now as, as a soloist, I embarked on Gordon Whitefoot. One, I'm a baritone and a bass. And so Gordon sings in a range that I'm comfortable with. I can I can sing some of his songs. And he is such a a, a great songwriter and, and the visual image. I've always been hung up on the words. I mean, to me, the story is is the best part of the song, not necessarily the music. And I, I, I currently do like sixty of his songs by memory, and if I need to, all the all the all the big ones. And you can always tell a Gordon Whitefoot fan when they ask for things like Rainbow Trout or uh, Looking at the Rain, or you know something that only a Gordon Whitefoot fan would know. You know, they all know Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald and sure. Early Morning Rain, which was uh, where I first heard a Gordon Whitefoot song was the Kington Trio did Early Morning Rain. It's, Correct, you know. You know, the the first time I had heard, well, maybe not the first time, but the first time I had heard that song was the We Five version of it, you know, in from their Catch the Wind album. Now, where can listeners find you both musically and online? Well, I don't have a website up just yet. I'm just I'm, I'm just working on it. But if they go to PrescottBands.com, they can see me as one of the artists from the Prescott area that's on YouTube. Okay. And are you still performing around when it's safe to do so? Yes. Yes. I've got, I've got about seven shows booked in January and I don't do strictly light, but I do Harry Chapin and Jimmy Buffett and, you know, all the, all the balladeers. That's what I kind of consider myself. Incidentally, I'm in Phoenix. And when I come to Phoenix, I cross the carefree highway every time I come down here. How perfect is that? Where can people find you online? You said you don't have a website, but do you have an email or a Twitter. Uh, yeah, they, I, they can reach me at, at ronskelton2 at gmail.com. Well, Ron, thank you so much for being on the show with me today. I mean, you picked my very favorite song. And so I'm glad that you were able to add your own spin to it. So thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having me, Mike. I really enjoy the show and oh, we continue to listen and, and learn. Thank you. And thanks for listening, everybody. If you liked this well enough to listen to the whole thing, tell somebody about it. Carefree Highway Revisited is on Apple, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can reach me, Mike Messner, at teachermike72 at gmail.com. Our next episode will be coming out on or about January 15, and it will feature my friend Kevin McClear making his return to the show, and we'll be discussing the song Ballad of Yarmouth Castle from Sunday Concert. Until then, this is Mike Messner reminding you, run for the roses, but don't forget to stop and smell them. We'll see you next time. 
Through the woodland, through the valley comes a horseman wild and free, tilting at the windmills passing. Who can the brave young horseman be? He is wild, but he is mellow. He is strong, but he is weak. He is cruel, but he is gentle. He is wise, but he is meek. Reaching for his saddlebag, he takes a battered book into his hand. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.